Craig, uh, an article was sent to us. Uh, God is a consequentialist, the theist defense. God is not moral. And this is from Jonathan M.S. Pierce, who addresses you in this particular essay. And he says that God is a consequentialist. And he'll be looking at a defense that you and others have used to, to get around this. I guess we need to define what we mean by consequentialism or a consequentialist right off the bat. Yes, he doesn't make that actually very clear in his blog, um, but I think on page two he captures the essence of it. He says, the, according to consequentialism, the value of an event is not in the event itself, but derived from the consequences. So that if a, if a decision, for example, a moral decision has good consequences, then the decision is morally good. If it has bad consequences, then the decision is morally bad. That would be consequentialism in ethics. And um, I would reject that view, uh, but his claim is that uh, on my view of God, God turns out to be a consequentialist. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying that you try to get around the fact that God is a consequentialist. Would you offer defenses and arguments that show that God is not held to consequentialism? Yes, I would challenge any argument that Jonathan would like to put forward to prove that God is a consequentialist. I I uh, don't think that there are any good arguments to show that or that I have affirmed that he is. He uses Noah's flood first as an illustration. Mm -hmm. He said there's context is everything here. There are two ways of looking at why God flooded the earth. The first is retribution. Humans could have been so sinful as to deserve almost entire eradication. And that does seem to be clearly the way in which it is presented in the Bible. The flood was not something that God did arbitrarily. Rather, the Genesis narrative says that humanity had become so evil that their thoughts were constantly of evil and that therefore um, God, in effect, ex um, exercised capital punishment on everyone and wiped them out. So it was, it was that they had done capital crimes and deserved to die. So it was retribution, it was retributive justice. He said of the flood, this retributive punishment is incoherent with the death of a myriad of morally unaccountable yet sentient animals. Well, granted that the death of the animals is not retributive justice, but now he's changing the subject. His first concern was with all the human beings that were wiped out, and that was an exercise of God's retributive justice. But nobody uh, is claiming that God's wiping out animals is an example of retribution on the animals. They're not moral agents. They didn't do anything wrong. So in that case, it would be simply God's being the Lord of heaven and earth and the animals' as property and his perfect right to put the animals to death just as um, we kill animals ourselves. He says, furthermore, retribution actually offers little in the way of constructive usefulness past a sort of deterrence which could be achieved in other ways without so much death, I wager. Now here, Jonathan is just confused. It's he who is presupposing 
a consequentialist theory of justice. On a consequentialist theory of justice, punishment is uh, justified because of the deterrence uh, quality that punishing criminals might have, uh, or because it quarantines from society dangerous criminals who shouldn't be at large, or um, because you want to rehabilitate these criminals. All of these are consequences which go to justify punishment. But a retributive theory of justice doesn't look to those consequences. On the contrary, on a retributive theory of justice, punishment is justified because the guilty deserve it. Uh, it is a an in, punishment of the guilty is an intrinsic good because the guilty deserve to be punished. So the deterrence quality of the flood is simply irrelevant on a retributive theory of justice. It's Jonathan who is smuggling in consequentialist uh, ideas here. He says it could be argued that retribution has some moral value itself, but only insofar as it pertains to gaining pleasure for the agent. Well, no, that's, again, a mistake. Um, the idea of, of a retributive theory of justice is that punishment is justified because it is an intrinsic good because the guilty deserve it. Hmm. And the point I'm making here is not a theological one. This is a, a legal point. It's part of the theory of punishment in philosophy of law, which has been of interest to me in the last uh, couple of years because of my studies of the uh, atonement of Christ. And um, that puts retributive and consequentialist theories of justice uh, in opposition to each other with respect to the justification of punishment. And so a retributive theory does indeed see moral value in retributive punishment itself, but not because it gives pleasure to the agent. That would be obviously wrong. Yeah. He says it would be easier to argue that catching the thief and putting him through successful rehabilitation would be a morally greater course of action than a retributive. Here again, you see, he's championing the consequentialist theory of justice, which aims at deterrence, sequestration, or rehabilitation. Uh, so it's so ironic, it's Jonathan who is plumping here for consequentialism. But the hypothesis under consideration is that the flood, uh, with respect to human beings at least, was justified because it was divine retribution for capital crimes. He says, the second way of looking at this is that God was trying to achieve a greater good in this seeming evil. And that's not the biblical view of the flood. Okay. Perhaps God needed to do this uh, potentially harsh act in order to achieve a particular, a particular all-loving end. If this is the case, then God, whose acts can only be seen as morally perfect, is using this event and the lives of all those who perish to achieve an end. This is clearly a form of consequentialism. Well, it's not clearly a form of consequentialism, but in any case, it's not the biblical view. As I say, the biblical view of the flood is clearly an exercise of God's retributive justice. Bill, then he gives a, a second illustration uh, a more recent event, the tsunami of 2004, 
has some poignant parallels with the global flood event. The world was shaken by the sheer force and fallout of such a massive natural phenomenon. Some 280,000 people died, as well as entire ecosystems and potentially billions of organisms perishing. God, with his classic characteristics, would have known this was going to happen and would have had the power to stop it. Being all-loving, all we can possibly conclude from his permissive will is that the tsunami must have served some greater good in order for it to be permitted by an omnibenevolent creator deity. Right. I would say that when natural suffering occurs in the world, that um, this is permitted by God with a view toward achieving other aims, other goods uh, that wouldn't have been achieved without it. But this is not a matter of determining the rightness or wrongness of moral choices by means of consequences, Um, but that by saying that uh, sometimes uh, suffering can be permitted because of overriding goods that are achieved. He says it is difficult to second-guess such reasons for allowing destruction of this magnitude. It could be a combination of reasons seen by theologians as theodicies. Yes, and I think that's right. The reasons for permitting an event so massive as that would be incalculably complex because of the reverberatory effect it would have upon human history. Um, It can send human history off on tangents that would be completely unpredictable um, and beyond our knowing. He mentions uh, one of the theodicies is the character building or soul building theodicy for the survivors or even those who perished, that this somehow God allows it to build character. Mm-hmm. And he attributes that to Irenaeus. The generally accepted maxim by Christian philosophers is that we cannot know the mind of God. And he has his reasons that perhaps we do not have the capabilities to understand but there must be a reason or a greater good to come from such suffering. Yes, or to prevent a, a, another evil, perhaps, by permitting this lesser evil, one prevents a greater evil or achieves a greater good. He quotes Phil Fernandez, who says, a theist would have to argue that this is the greatest possible way to achieve the greatest possible world. And yeah. I don't think that's right. I, I think that here Phil Fernandez is echoing Norm Geisler, and I, I don't think that uh, the Christian is committed to that, and I wouldn't agree with it. That this may be the best way to the best of all possible worlds? Kind of a that's thing. what yeah. Phil is saying, okay. and I, I don't see any reason to think that that's what we're committed to. Okay. God often uses evil and human suffering to draw people to himself. Now, God's ways and thoughts are far above our understanding, and even the scriptures state that. At best... Atheistic arguments show that limited minds can't fully understand why God allows so much evil, end of quote. And he says, this sort of rationalization is commonplace, and you, Dr. Craig, have also reached similar conclusions when talking of the problem of evil. And then he quotes you here uh, when you say, uh, quoting, again, such an assumption is not necessarily true. Now, what assumption is he talking about here? It is that uh, an omnibenevolent God would prefer a world without evil. The proponent of the logical version of the problem of evil has to prove that that's necessarily true. And it's, 
I think just not necessarily true that an omnibenevolent God would prefer a world without evil. Uh, there might be good reasons for permitting evil to occur. Um, for example, freedom of the will that would allow persons to sin and rebel against God. Um, that would be a morally sufficient reason. So it's widely recognized that the atheist has not been able to bear his burden of proof in showing that it's necessarily true that an omnibenevolent God would prefer a world without evil. He continues with you. Every parent knows this fact. The fact is that in many cases we allow pain and suffering to occur in a person's life in order to bring about some greater good or because we have some sufficient reason for allowing it. Every parent knows this fact. There comes a point at which a parent can no longer protect his child from every mishap. And there are other times when discipline must be inflicted on the child in order to teach him to become a mature, responsible adult. Similarly, God may permit suffering in our lives in order to build us or to test us or to build and test others or to achieve some other overriding end. Thus, even though God is omnibenevolent, he might well have morally sufficient reasons for permitting pain and suffering in the world. End of quote there. Well, sounds good to me, Bill. He says, this is a clear exposition of the notion that the moral value of God's decisions is being evaluated by an analysis of the consequences. Craig here seems to implicitly accept moral consequentialism as the system to justify God's actions, whilst simultaneously claiming God is not moral. Now, I think that the charge of consequentialism here is, is misplaced. One is not saying that you evaluate the moral rightness or wrongness of an action based upon whether it has good consequences or not. But it is true that on any ethical theory, you do look to, to the consequences to determine what your moral duty in some situation might be. For example, suppose you have a moral principle to love your neighbor as yourself. And then suppose that there's a, a, a terrorist attack and you're a first responder, a medic who comes on the scene and there are people lying, littered all over the ground, bleeding to death. You're going to be called upon to perform triage on those people. There are going to be certain people that you could stop and help whom you will overlook. You won't help them. Why? Because they don't have as good a chance of survival if you help them as several others that are in the area. You will go to those to help them that have the best chance of surviving as a result of your action, and you will pass over and not save those whom you could have paused to, to work on. Now, does that mean that the rightness or wrongness of your action is based on the consequences? No, it's just saying that the consequences are relative to determining your course of action in fulfilling your moral duty to love your neighbor as yourself. You have an unconditional moral duty to do that, but in order to determine what it is to be loving one's neighbor in this situation, you're going to look to uh, the consequences in order to help discern your moral duty. So 
um, moral duties are not considered simply an abstraction from their results, but neither are the consequences that which determine the goodness or the uh, wrongness of a moral action. There could be a moral action, say the rape and murder of a little girl, that due to some quirk of history turns out to have wonderful consequences ultimately, but that wouldn't make it right or good. Um, so I, I don't think anything I've said here is affirming that the worth uh, or rightness or wrongness of a moral action is determined by its consequences. Yeah. Well, Bill, uh, Jonathan has been reading your work and listening to uh, your, your lectures and debates and so on and is interacting with it here. Your final take on this article? Well, I think he needs to get clearer on retributive versus consequentialist theories of justice, first of all. And then I think he needs to get clearer on how even deontologists, that is to say non-consequentialists, nevertheless will take into account the results of one's choices in determining what one's moral duty is in a particular situation. 